Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. How are we? Not great? Not well. Not sparkly. Do people say that? Not like... like Wait, can you imagine someone's like, hey, that's, how are you? That's, that's honestly, honestly great. Sparkly. Honestly, I kind of could see myself actually saying that, though, now that I'm thinking about it. I was going to say, it's kind of on brand for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's so weird. Oh, wait. No, that's just, that's genuinely me. So. Just catch me saying that in a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's a little bit of a doomsday day post today. We're recording on a Tuesday, aka the day after SCOTUS. Scrotus leaked their opinion on Roe v. Wade and how they plan to overturn it. Which we know. We knew there was... We know. We expected. But I think most people just haven't been aware of this and are finally waking up to it. Which is, again, it's always... We always say it's it's better late than never. I think people are just more of like, oh my gosh, okay, like the clock is ticking. We need to really get the people that aren't activated activated like pull a lindsey hubbard on this goddamn freaking action items level that i don't know what you're referring to because i haven't seen the summer (gasps) house finale yet so give me a second okay fine i'll be watching it tonight but no we just we have we'll be covering this story in full in our top stories in a little bit but we also just have a very timely and pertinent episode because we're Mm -hmm. talking with the executive director of emily's list and they do amazing work to elect pro-choice candidates up and down the ballot. So we'll be talking about all of that with her. And then going into our top stories, we have just like a few really big stories, honestly, to get through. So, <laughs> But I did want to, before we jump into everything today, maybe some little comedic relief um, because the White House Correspondents Dinner happened this weekend. And there were just some fire jokes from Trevor Noah, obviously. But like our president, like our president came in with some absolute slappers of jokes and we're proud of him for it and let's just let's just run right through them what do you think let's do it okay first one is from we're gonna run through two of biden's because these are some of my faves so in his speech he thanked the more than two thousand people that were there and was talking about how they're vaccinated and they had negative tests they tested that day for the virus so everyone was negative and vaccinated and so he said quote so if you're at home watching this and you're wondering how to do that, just contact your favorite Fox News reporter. They're all here, vaccinated and boosted, all of them. <laughs> and this is funny because Fox News just constantly has been spewing anti-vax rhetoric and they're all vaccinated, all of them. And so we just, we love this. We love this job from Biden. And we also love this next joke where he says, a special thanks to the 42% of you that actually applauded. I'm really excited to be here tonight with the only group of Americans with a lower approval rating than I have. <laughs> and you know what? 
love a self-aware king, you know? Totally. We love a self-aware king. Just writers, because the writers that are working behind the scenes and coordinating this not only are coming up with this content, throwing it out there, trying to make it him, but clearly they have enough of, like, a fun working relationship where, like, they're like, yeah, these jokes, they're hilarious. And he's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, they are too. And he's rolling with them. Like, if Trump were in this scenario... You'd like, <gasps> he would never. He would never acknowledge his poor approval ratings. And the thing is, it's like, this might be enough for people to be like, do I approve of Joe Biden now? <laughs> this might have done something for his approval ratings. Who knows? Hey, you know, weirder things have happened, but... Just the self-awareness, <sighs> just really... It's, underrated it. quality. Absolutely underrated quality. Yes. And it's such Absolutely. an attractive quality. It is. It self-awareness, really is. emotional intelligence. Mm. Mm. Chef's mm. kiss. Mwah. Okay, we're going to some Trevor Noah jokes. So this is this is one of them. Quote, what I like about Ron DeSantis is if Trump was the original Terminator, DeSantis is like the T-1000. You're smarter than him. You're slicker than him. You can walk down ramps. <laughs> Trump said he won the election, but everyone was able to look at the numbers and see that he was wrong. That's why Ron DeSantis is one step ahead. First, you ban the math textbooks. Then nobody knows how to count the votes. <laughs> I, did we talk about this last week or the week before? But just like we live another timely, timely joke. Where like he's literally banning textbooks in Florida. It's just this is that, math that textbooks too. Math, math textbooks, textbooks for CRT. The logic is just leaving me befuddled. But this joke did leave me laughing, and that that joke is in quotes. I was a little confused about why me, but then I was told you get your highest approval ratings with a biracial African guy standing next to you. And this had me dead, dead deceased, six feet under. Was Obama there? I actually don't know. None of the pics that I saw on our feed and or news stories, I saw pics of him or Michelle. Yeah, we we would have seen them if they were there. Okay, next one. Trevor Noah said, interesting fact. Even as first lady, Dr. Biden continued her teaching career the first time a presidential spouse has ever done so. Congratulations. You might think it's because she loves teaching so much, but it's actually because she's still paying off her student debt. I'm sorry about that, Jill. Guess you should have voted for Bernie. It's so good. It's so good. And also, like, if you watch the videos, like, we also just love – self the self-aware queen because like they're just laugh sitting there laughing like joe's laughing it's just we love that and now we're on we're on our way to student debt cancellation potentially potentially prayers fingers crossed hopefully that made a push push biden over the edge who knows one one can hope to round the jokes out to really bring us home thank you so much for having me i appreciate you please be careful leaving tonight we all know this administration doesn't handle evacuations well (laughs) Ah, <laughs> uh, it's it's dark, but it's good. It's so good. It, it's so it's, good. It's so good. And I honestly love this White House White House correspondence dinner. Like every time it happens, it's mm-hmm. so iconic. Like never forget Michelle Wolf during the Trump administration. Like she absolutely roasted them. And if you watch those videos, like they're not laughing. Like they can't take the jokes, but like. Joe's sitting here, like, taking them and laughing and just being a self-aware, humble king. And that's that's what we love. A thousand percent. I also love that it's called Nerd Prom. Like, sign me up. I want to get to go to Nerd Prom. Like, hell yeah. And then in addition to that, the fashion, iconic. I saw some amazing dresses. on. Mm-hmm. Like, Caitlin Collins had this yellow dress. Reporter, FYI, go Google her, follow her. She's, like, a great follow. 
to keep up with stuff and she's like our age too which is pretty cool and her dress was literally stunning and I wish I looked good in yellow because I would be purchasing that for the next wedding I have like ASAP Rocky Iconic. but but let's let's get into this episode and let's introduce this guest because we have so much to talk about well we are going to get into today's episode as Maddie mentioned earlier this one is quite pertinent we are talking with Emily Kane the executive director of Emily's List organization works to elect pro-choice democratic women up and down the ballot so we're talking with her about what they're up to what they're doing and also how she got into politics because she is no stranger to this game she was also an elected official in maine so if you have any maniacs listening this is for you that's so cute i know isn't it i think i had a shirt when i was little that had it on it with a moose I'll have to confirm with the parental units. We um, did we did talk about moose and blueberries and lobster, and we are actually still need to book our flights to Maine because get me there this summer, 100%. Facts. Absolute facts. We're doing it. It's going to be great. So without further ado, here's Emily. Well, we are so excited to speak with you today. Before I even do a little introduction, I would just like to say that Emily's List has been on my radar since I first was interested in politics in like middle school. It's always been one of those organizations that has come to mind that my parents always talked about. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, when I grow up, I need to learn more about Emily's List. I need to figure out how to get involved in what they're doing and all of that. So this conversation, whew, I'm excited. But to back it up a little bit, you are the executive director of said organization. Can you walk us through, A, what is that role in general? And also give us a background on Emily's List. What do you guys do? Sure. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you for having me. And thank you for what you're doing with this podcast. Uh, When I first learned about it, when you reached out to me on Instagram, I was like, yeah, of course I want to do that show, obviously. And, you know, I, I share the same affection for you as you do about Emily's list. Not Aww. only, I mean, I, my name is Emily and I should clear it up for your for your list. <laughs> yeah, I was like, my, are you the Emily? <laughs> no, no, my name is Emily and I'm the executive director of Emily's list. And it never gets old being Emily from Emily's list, but there was actually no one named Emily at the founding meeting of Emily's list. Emily is an acronym. It stands for early money is like yeast. It makes the dough rise. And Emily's list got its start providing early financial support to Democratic pro-choice women running for office. And and let me be clear, what is Emily's List? Emily's List is the nation's largest resource for women in politics. Since 1985, we've been working to elect Democratic pro-choice women up and down the ballot all across the country, not just with financial support, but with solid, strong, professional advice and strategy to help women build their campaigns and have the best impact in their political careers. In our history, we've helped elect, wait for it, 26 United States senators, 159 women to the US House, 16 governors, more than 1,700 state and local officials. And I'm especially proud that when it comes to the women we've elected to Congress, more than 40% have been women of color. So this is really about changing the face of power in our country. Emily's List has been there every day doing this work since 1985. Ugh, obsessed. Love all of that. And, you know, you actually were first elected to office at the age of 24 in Maine. 
Tell us about that. I mean, obviously, this just makes so much sense that you're now involved with Emily's List. But tell us, like, what running for office at that age was. Like, I'm 25. I can't even imagine. So, wow. (laughs) Let's hear all the tea. Okay. So, running for office when you're 24, I'll I'll acknowledge it's not what most people do. More people should. But but what I would say for me is I didn't grow up wanting to be a politician. I didn't come from a political family. I didn't wake up in the morning when I was five years old and say, I want to be a politician. In fact, I woke up saying, I want to be a Broadway star. That's what I wanted to be. Truthfully, that's still what I want to be when I grow up. And I think there are plenty of roles. I feel like there's some synergies there too. I I mean, yes, there's a lot of synergy. But for me personally, I came to politics really as I was in college and then graduate school and began to connect the dots between the things I care about and decisions that were being made by elected officials. My undergraduate degree is from the University of Maine in vocal music education. I'm trained to be a music teacher, K through 12, and someday maybe I'll actually go and do that too. <laughs> That's a great way to make the world a better place. Yeah. But it was Please while teach I teach my neighbor how to sing. Please. Okay, I'll <laughs> yeah. work on that. Yeah, it's just Sam has a come over. screaming neighbor. Oh jeez. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> we can, we can have a side combo about that. But for, for me, you know, it was first my own challenge affording college which led me to attend the University of Maine, which was a school my family could afford. And then pursuing a master's degree at Harvard in higher education was really where I began to connect the dots between things like college affordability, student success, the economic opportunities that were available to college kids when they graduate, and decisions being made by elected officials that led them to have more debt or underfunding Pell Grants and underfunding support for public higher education. And when I was finishing up my master's degree in 2004, I went to see my state senator and said, I think I'd like to work in public policy to my state (laughs) senator, Mary Cathcart. And she and her husband looked at me and said, have you ever thought about running for office? To which I said, no. To which no, they said, "It's not, not, <laughs> not a shot in hell." Basically, Absolutely no, no. Not. I mean, I just was like, "No," but look, as I said to you, Broadway's still on my list. So I said to them, "No," but I mean, maybe someday. You never know. I hadn't really thought about it. In my head, I was thinking, "I really just want to give you my resume because I would like to help you help me get a job." And Jim turned to Mary and said, "Mary, I think we found our candidate." And I said, "For what?" <laughs> And I didn't know, but the state house seat in my town was opening up and they were recruiting. And that was May of 2004. In June, I finished my master's degree. In July, I became a candidate. In August, I got married. And in November, I got elected. (laughs) True story. Also, side note to your listeners. Each of those things are major life events. Each of them is worthy of your say, own calendar year. I am year. behind. Okay, each of them is worthy <laughs> definitely, of your own calendar Definitely year. in the marriage section, honestly, is where I'm most behind. But Okay, hey. there's no such thing as being behind on that front. Okay, <laughs> people should not get married until they are ready and they want to, and to someone they really truly want to make those choices with, right? I've been yes. married now 17 and a half years. I was elected I for that. 10. I was on the ballot in 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, and 16. Like, there's a lot that's happened since then, but each of those things is actually worthy of its own year. I just am a, really a multitasker and got them all yep. done in about a five month period. Yes. So I was elected in 2004 <laughs> at the age of 24 to the Maine State House. And I'm actually guessing most people on your who are listening to the podcast today have probably been to their state house. I hope you have. When you grew up, maybe you went on a tour of it, right? Well, my family had, had, had moved to Maine just before I was going to college. And so, I had never been to the Maine State House. I actually, because it was 2004 and I 
don't want to feel like an old lady to your listeners, but I actually had to map quest the directions and print them off. Don't laugh at me, ladies. No, I, I it's just so funny because I think about this the all the time. I'm like, how did people function without <laughs> navigation? And my mom, my mom's right. a real estate agent. And like before, you know, smartphones, I was like, she was right. doing, she was just printing out maps. I'm like, I had to print out the directions on MapQuest, MapQuest and drive myself to the state house for the first time as an incoming elected official. I went on to serve for 10 years. I held some of the highest positions available to me, including chairing the appropriations committee for the state. That's the budget committee. I was the democratic leader, the minority leader, which took back the majority. I served in the state Senate as well before running for Congress, uh, which I did nearly successfully twice, but, but I've won five elections. I have lost two and running for office when you're 24 is absolutely something more people should think about doing. You know, and I will say this, I think there's a lot of pressure on women at all times at any age to be ready, right? You, whether it's thinking about when you get married or have a child or buy a house or where you are in your degrees and do you need a law degree and do you need this or whatever. Here's what I want people to take away from this conversation. If you're thinking at all about running for office and my hope is after this conversation today, you are putting it on your things I might do someday list, right? Yes. Is because when you think about what makes you qualified or ready to run for office, I say, let's, let's look at the constitution, right? And the constitution of all the states across the country, I haven't read all of them. I've read the main constitution. I've read the US constitution. I've not read all 50 states, but what I can tell you is that those state constitutions line out typically an age you have to be to run for office, typically some kind of geography about where you live. They also might say that you have to have a certain citizenship, right? To run for office. But you know what it doesn't say? doesn't say you have to have a law degree. It doesn't say you have to have gone to college. doesn't say you have to have been a parent or not, or owned a business or not. doesn't say you have to have been a banker or that you have to have dreamed of it your whole life. It simply says where you have to live, how old you are, and your citizenship status. And that means what running for office really is about is the life you've lived, the work you do, and what you care about, right? I, running for office is not glamorous, my friends. It is hard. <laughs> it is not glamorous, yeah. right? It is hard. It's hard on your family and your friends. You are gone a lot. You do weird things like knock on complete strangers' doors <laughs> in the middle of a beautiful Saturday afternoon while everybody yeah. else is at the lake. You get up at the crack of dawn to march in a parade and shake strangers' hands, and you love it, especially if you're me. Really love parades, and I do. I love. I still love. I miss the parade. Love a good parade. I love the parade. But the point is, you do this work because you get out of bed in the morning caring about something enough that you're willing to do the unglamorous work of fundraising. Mm. That you're willing to do the unglamorous work of asking people to help you and support you. And at Emily's List, what we do is we help women who care about something enough that they wanna do something about it in their communities, right? And maybe they've been through it. Maybe it's because they survived breast cancer. Maybe it's because they took care of a sick kid or a parent. Maybe it's because they've been homeless themselves and wanna help others not become homeless. Maybe it's because they struggled to afford college or maybe it's because they served in our military and they have a story to tell about service. There is no reason not to run for office is really what I'm saying to you. And in Emily's List, what we do is help democratic pro-choice women put structure and build a, bring experience that we have to help them build their, their best campaign. And I'm really proud of that work. And I'm really, I have to say, when I got this job almost five years ago, I couldn't believe I got this job. This is like the, a dream job for me. And then on top of that, I use everything I've ever learned every day, 
right? When I think about the days I had on the campaign trail that were hard, any one of our women, any of the hundreds of candidates we work with every year can call me on the phone and I can pep talk her right back into it. Right. I love I've, and, and I, and that's the best part. I mean, besides the team and the mission of Emily's list, the opportunity to, to personally bring to bear my experience on the ballot and, and in elected office is what just, it just warms my heart every time. Yeah. I love I'm not surprised you have this role whatsoever. (laughs) Your experience obviously is fully there. You're fully qualified. You're very inspirational. And your name is Emily. So I'm just like, there's, (laughs) I don't think there's a better fit, but thank you. Nonetheless. (laughs) Totally. And I think that structure element and that support is so necessary, whether it's a woman running for office or a woman in business. And everything can be so overwhelming. Maddie and I always talk about this all the time. We're trying to figure out, you know, what we're what we're doing for the day, what we're tackling for the month, what are our objectives. And we're always like, okay, it would be great to also have some more, you know, supports, more structure. And like when we do find that, you know, with other, you know, colleagues in the industry, it's always so great. And like a little pep talk, a little compliment, something like that goes a long way. So mm-hmm running for office, having something there, I can only imagine what that does for candidates and how that can like really change the game. Because in anything you do, whether it's running for office, owning business, even if you're something else, whatever, there's always gonna be a bad day. You always are gonna need some support. And so I think what you guys are doing is just so excellent. So we wanna move on to our I have a stupid question segment and kind of head back to Emily's lesson, what you guys do. The first question is how does your organization decide if a candidate is viable or not? So it, it's a really interesting thing. So we, I'm going to focus on the word viable for a second, right? Because viable, we think means like, you know, can they make it, right? At Emily's yeah. List, we really have thrown out that word because it's really not about are they viable? It's can they be competitive? Because viable implies that you somehow should already start. you like, how you start is how you're going to finish. And that's not true when it comes to politics. How you start maybe somebody who cares about the quality of the water in your town you don't know anything about running for office well you don't have to we can help you right that's what makes you competitive we help you find that path to victory and and so for us uh, when we're talking about the potential to be competitive it's about do you you know what is building out that path to victory whose support do you need where are the voters how are you going to reach them and as a candidate more than are you I'm not going to ever ask you why are you viable? I'm going to ask you, are you willing to do the work to be competitive? Are you willing to do the fundraising? Are you willing to knock on the doors, make the calls, do the communications practice, right? Are you willing to, to learn about the issues that face your voters and your community so you can be a strong advocate for them? That is really where we start at Emily's List. And from there, we teach candidates everything they need to know from how to do call time, how to become more skilled at rapid response and communications, how to build out a team, how to ask for support, build out a field plan. But it really starts with, are you willing to do the work to be competitive? Mm-hmm. I love that turn of words. And I think that's really important. Especially yeah. and for I, Let me region. say this. I also think we're talking about women, particularly women of color, LGBTQ women, women who come from you know underprivileged backgrounds, right? Socioeconomically. The society we have doesn't look at them and say, you know, you should run for office. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, right? It we, doesn't. I mean, let's just be clear. We still have a patriarchal government society here in the United uh, States. It's still least. overwhelmingly <laughs> dominated by men, overwhelmingly dominated yeah. by white men, some of whom are wonderful, many of whom are supportive of the diversification. But, you know, here, here's the thing. 
in order to get elected, you have to be on the ballot, right? It doesn't just happen because people are like, you know, government should be more diverse. Yeah, it should. You know how you do that? You elect people, right? So right. Emily's List, insert Emily's List, right? Who helps women navigate that that system mm -hmm. and, and, and gets the results because we think about it in that comprehensive way. Um, yeah. You know, it, I don't, I bet if you, you think of examples around the country, some, you know, Lauren Underwood, who was a, now a congressman from Illinois, was a young nurse in her 20s, dealt with a Flint water crisis, moved home. She's a pre-existing health condition, never thought about running for office. Right. It wasn't until her congressman literally said, I will not vote to take away protections for pre-existing conditions in healthcare," And then he did. Right. And she said, well, I guess I have to run for office. You know, young yeah. black woman running in the western suburbs of Chicago, now representing a district that had not only never had a woman, but had never had a person of color. She beat five men in that primary with the support hey. of Emily's List, right? There are examples like Lauren all across the country, right? When you think about women, again, particularly women from communities of color who are never the first person people think of to run. And because they don't look like what politicians look like, because politicians yeah. have looked largely like white men forever. So yeah. we, ha we have to change what politicians look like. That's the power of Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. You know, that you can't turn on, or Nancy Pelosi, you can't turn on the TV and not know that women hold high positions of political power in our country. That's totally. powerful. It is, yeah, for sure. Representation definitely matters. And I think there definitely is so much work to be done. And it's interesting too in the lens of just my day today and i was looking for literally some content for a TikTok of all things and i was like i want the sound in in the making was very much celebrating a for us a woman in politics and i went to the hill i went to politico i was like let's see what woman is killing it today let's see if we can highlight them and literally none of the coverage was focused on any single woman in politics there was not yeah. one story granted i started digging etc but two front pages major political you know publications and nothing so there is definitely so much work to be done to say the least some of that i know is connected to the financing of campaigns we want to get into mm -hmm. that a little bit and get an understanding of like how do you guys decide how to support candidates financially what does that look like give us the scoop on that so it all starts with the idea that finances is only or only one financial support is only one way we support candidates and to be honest the the rules about finances vary state by state so all federal races are the same all united states senators and house members are under the same rules they we have set limits we're allowed to give them for example our PAC can give them a five thousand dollar contribution in their primary and again in their general we can't give them any other money, right? So for us, an endorsement for the House or Senate comes with that check. At the state and local level, where we're endorsing, in our last cycle, it was more than 600 candidates. Every state is different. So for example, in my state, in Maine, we have public financing of campaigns. So does a state like Arizona. So we can't, Emily's List can't write a check to a, to a candidate and her campaign. In Virginia, Emily's List, you know, in, in the 2019 elections, we spent over a million dollars there on candidate contributions, right? Because those races have unlimited contributions from any source. So, so, so initially, the decision to endorse a candidate is all on a case-by-case -case basis, right? To be eligible for our endorsement, you have to be a Democratic pro-choice woman. But then the decision to endorse really gets back to that 
are you building that com competitive campaign plan? Are you taking the advice that we're offering? Are you, you know, what's the dynamic of the race? What's the dynamic of the district? What is the timing of the endorsement would, would matter? Is it a primary versus a general election? But then the after we've made the decision to endorse, we then make the financial decision, which is based first and foremost on what are the laws and compliance, you know, legal, <laughs> we have, as we like to say, FEC jail is real jail at Emily. It, it, it is like, <laughs> cannot, we don't want to break the rules at the yeah, FEC facts. or anywhere else or at state level. So we work hard to make sure we can support all of our candidates in the best ways possible with as much support, whether it's financial or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of explain endorsements a little bit further too and sure. what that really looks like and really how effective those are in some of these campaigns? So when somebody runs for office, an endorsement is can be a sign of a few things, right? So they might get an endorsement from a group that has a statement of policy priorities, maybe an environmental group, right? Or a group like Planned Parenthood that is about women's reproductive health care. Uh, maybe they're getting endorsements from labor unions, right? So saying that they're a pro-worker candidate. They might be getting endorsements from business groups. They might be getting endorsements from professional associations, right? The nurses and unions or healthcare organizations. So what you end up with is those kind of validators of what a candidate stands for and where their where their where their ideology is. An endorsement like Emily's list, because ours we've been around for a long time, and because we do only endorse Democratic pro-choice women, an endorsement from Emily's list is really a signal that this race is competitive, that it's and, and that the candidate is running a competitive campaign, right? So it's competitive in that it's competitive in the map. So we don't really endorse in very safe races for re-election. Right? So we've we've worked to elect nearly all of the women in the US House, but we don't re-endorse all of them every year because not all of them have competitive races. But sometimes we do, oftentimes we endorse incumbents because they need help. It's sort of sending a signal to our community. The Emily's List community is made up of more than 5 million members. So when we endorse someone, that means we're sending a signal to our donors that you should give them money. You should help them. You should volunteer for them if they're in your area. And they're, and they're a campaign we're willing to put our stamp on. And so, so that's where the power of endorsement. An endorsement is usually a signal of either a position you hold or to a community, right? Or a community of members in an organization that this is a candidate worth supporting. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, moving forward, we want to talk about women voters mm -hmm. because I think we have a lot of them listening. I might be just wrong. A I don't know. Just, just a few. Just a few. Yeah. All right, ladies, um, let's talk voting. Okay. Let's talk. Let's talk, ladies. So women actually make up the majority of voters, but aren't really the biggest participants. So what has your research through women vote shown as to why this is? Can we kind of dive into this topic? So yeah, so let's start with that, the premise, right? So mm -hmm. women make up the majority of the population actually too, right? And the majority of college going students right now. And, and women are making up the majority of a lot. I only say that as a reinforcement of like, there should be more women in government. I'm just going to make right, that side point, us. right? Just, <laughs> so yeah. then, so let, let's talk about women voters. It's actually a common misperception that women aren't the biggest participants. In fact, we are the biggest participants. We vote more. Um, you know, we make up typically between 52 and 54% of the vote overall. And in recent years, we've actually increased our political giving. We've been the ones who take action who are calling the offices of senators and house members and governors and marching. And if you think back to January of 2017 and the women's march, 
that was not um, just a moment, right? Mm -hmm. All of those hundreds of thousands, millions, really, if you count across the country, women went back home and they weren't like, oh, I checked that box, I'm good, right? They didn't. Yeah. They got more involved. In fact, at Emily's mm -hmm. list, um, since the 2016 election, we've had more than 65,000 women sign up with us to say they want to make a plan to run for office, right? Wow. So we, we are the biggest participants in voting by the numbers, again, 52 to 54%. Where we fall behind is in representation in elected office, which is exactly what Emily's list is here to do. And because Emily's list has been a part of it, we've literally helped change the face of American politics. So d does that make sense? Yes, and that is just quite the slogan, and I think it needs to be plastered all over your website and everything, because that's amazing. <laughs> totally. And thinking about not just women, but pro-choice women, right now, of course, there's quite a lot of need for these women to turn mm -hmm. out and vote, but what have been some of the strategies over the years that have really worked to get this particular group of women out to the polls and year after year too, you know, that sustainability mm -hmm. between elections and that potential drop-off always very scary as people that are involved, but you know, what have you guys done that's worked? So let's start with a basic thing. I'm gonna say something out loud that I know this group knows, but sometimes if you say things out loud, they like, you hear them differently, which is totally. not all women are the same. I know, yeah. wait, let's just take a minute and think about it, right? And I, I say yeah. it like that because oftentimes when you look at the media or when you listen to particularly male political pundits, they'll say things like women will hate that or black women will love that or Latinas will think that is whatever. Let's just start with the premise as we think about answering this question that not all women are the same, mm -hmm. right? When I was in the legislature, I can't tell you how many times I was the only woman at the table and people would say, what do you think the women will think about this? Like, well. Newsflash, I'm only one of them, right? And yeah. We, we yeah. each have yeah. our own, and we each have our own story, our own lived experiences, right? Our own history that informs our decisions when we vote. So at Emily's List, we start with the premise that not all women are the same and understand that. So we undertake rigorous research to understand the behavioral patterns that encourage Democratic women voters to vote. And for the past few years, we've actually conducted experiments to get this answer even more clear. So for example, last cycle, we did a direct, we did direct mail that's mailed right to your house with your name on it, focused on how out of control we were all feeling during COVID. Anybody relate to that feeling out of control during COVID, Just right? a little bit. <laughs> and, and what we did was we tied that to voting as voting mm -hmm. was something you could actually control yeah. to improve your life. Right. Yeah. And we saw it make a difference for those Democratic women voters. And we're working on a similar test for this year because we're always looking to understand women voters better because we do start with that premise that they aren't all the same. Yeah. That's actually so funny. That made me think of how they're always like, what are the women going to think? And it's like and then when men <laughs> it's thrown on men, they're like, but not all men. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, oh, classic. I know. Um, can we also talk about age because Definitely. and how age plays into this and specifically how women voters turn out? There is an age yeah. gap there as far as how young women turn out. It's kind of exactly why Sam and I are here doing this. But can we hear Love it? You, like what's the breakdown? All right. So let's start with older women turn out at a higher rate than younger women. However, younger women tend to be more democratic. Yeah. So at Emily's List, we work with partners to drive out turnout for voters under the age of 35. 
right? But again, because not all women are the same, I want to be clear that some of the specific numbers of, of like what constitutes that younger voter, you know, does vary race to race, right, by campaign. So meaning we are, the, the campaign that's being run that might be turning out a 25-year-old woman in a rural county in Iowa or Maine is probably a different message because the woman may be at a different life stage or asking themselves different questions than a 25-year-old woman in San Antonio or Atlanta, right? So again, we, we, we look to understand women and trends among women, but then on a campaign by campaign, race by race basis, we make sure that we are focusing the message and the approach to reaching those women in a campaign specific way. In that experiment phase, is there anything that you guys found that was really surprising or totally through you? You were like, is this real life kind of vibe? So I'll tell you, one of the things that constantly surprises me that we test often over time is sort of what is the most effective tool to get people out to vote, right? And because, you know, we've all gotten the call, right? They, you get the calls, you get the mail, the mailers, now you get the text, yep. right? Text. Oh, yeah. Uh, the text. The texts are like the, the hot, the hot thing that make you want to silence your phone. But sometimes you should look at them, especially if they're from Emily's list. And you can I join the Emily's them, list. So. <laughs> yeah, Emily's list is four seven seven one seven. You can opt in to Emily's list SMS if you want. But back to your question. So one of the things that to me I find most astounding, consistently now, election over election, is that the social pressure message is consistently one of the top performers overall for getting out the vote, right? The thing that says your neighbors are voting more than you, right? Or like, you're the only one on your street who didn't vote in that last election. Like that sort of, like, which is crazy, right? Cause you'd think yeah. that might make people mad or might turn them off. Mm -hmm. It may, but it also gets them to the polls. So that's just one yeah. little example from, uh, I remember from reading these things over the years that consistently pops up and consistently surprises me. Cause I always think if I got that mailer, I'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, I'd be like, excuse me. And then I'd excuse be like packing me? my bags be like, fine, I'm going. <laughs> right. See, you just proved the point, yeah. right? You'd be yeah. like, I don't want to be the only one on my street, you know? I'm like and, rude, um, but fine. <laughs> exactly. So that is really, that's just one example of, of sort of the kind of things that we can do to help, help people get to the polls. Cause the truth is we want them at the polls. It's life is yeah. better. Elections are better when more people participate in them, period, Absolutely. full stop, right? When they yes. are more transparent, when we can have confidence in the results because we know mm -hmm. everybody who wanted to had a chance to, to go vote. That's what this is, you know, that's what makes this such an amazing democratic experiment, right? And why we believe in it so much is because it really is about the people expressing themselves. And at Emily's yeah. List, we think it's a powerful combination with these incredible, talented, democratic, pro-choice women on the ballot, it just gives people something they can really believe in to vote for. Yeah. Totally. I also had a question, too, because you mentioned earlier, obviously, how, like, younger women turn out less but are more democratic. Mm -hmm. We have done a lot of research on this as well, but I was curious if you guys have some answers as to, like, why aren't those voters retained for the Democratic Party? Like, the retention kind of, like, why... Mm -hmm. Why do women kind of like lose some of those more like progressive values as they as they age? Like why you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't have like a I don't have a scientific answer to your question today. But what I can tell you, is, you know, I represented a college community for 10 years in the legislature. And it was I actually represented from 2004, 2014. And what, what's important about that is the power of social media. So I joined Facebook 
as an elected official in 2005, which means everything I've ever put on the public domain has been either, well, I was or have since been an elected official. Which, by the way, when you run for Congress and you do the research book on yourself, your research book person is like, wow, it's so great. Your social media is so clean. Like, yeah, well, because I've only <laughs> ever done it as a public yeah. official. But I say that because I represented this college town at a time when young people were just starting to engage in social media, right? I used to, I, I maxed out, I think the max is still 5,000 friends you can have on Facebook. I maxed out in like 2009, right? Which wow. is crazy to think, right? But it's because I represented a college town and every time I went anywhere, I'd come home to 25 new friend requests. I did not know there yeah. was a limit at the time. And I just said yes to all, right? Yeah. And so you you max out on your friends, but, but really what that is speaking to is how people get information and how they get connected. And I think what we're talking about, what I experienced when I was campaigning, asking people who were 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 for their votes, is that they really were not yet comfortable being in a political party, right? They know what they care about. They were pro-choice, they were pro-equality, right? Anti-racist, but they didn't necessarily know if they wanted to be a Republican or a Democrat. And so I think one of the things that is so important about the work that we do at Emily's List and the research that we do on women voters is we can help see women through that journey, right? As they shift and as they change, and we can meet them where they're at because we do know that 80% of Americans do support access to safe and legal abortion. Right. We do know that it, it overwhelmingly women do. Right. And so we can connect with those voters at a young age, get them out to the polls. That's going to make a difference for our candidates. It's, and, and I also say this. The work that we're doing, engaging young voters, there is research that shows that if you get somebody to vote, they're going to stay a voter. Right. And it's our opportunity, then, I would say that even as they are growing up, as they're facing different choices financially or in their family or contemplating other political views. If we continue to put good candidates in front of them, those young women voters, even as they become less young women voters, not going to say old, because I'm just <laughs> less young at 42, that they, they will continue to show up and, and vote for our candidates, right? So I see hope in the, in young women voters. I have never seen so many young women. You're thinking about yourselves, right? I ran for office. You started a podcast. <laughs> when we were the same age, right? That's pretty, you You probably and arguably have reached more people than I did. And I represented thousands of people for 10 years, right? And many counties here in the state of Maine. But think about what you did with your political frustration and multiply it by millions, right? That's That's the power that young women have right now. I think what we're trying to do at Emily's List is show them that Government should reflect them in every way, in who yeah. serves there, who gets to vote, who works on campaigns, right? We do a lot of work helping to help place women into jobs on campaigns because we need more women political operatives, right? Mm -hmm. It's about changing the whole infrastructure and ecosystem of politics to reflect what our nation looks like, which as we talked about earlier is a majority of women, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we, it's one of the reasons I wanted to be on your show right? Because maybe somebody listening isn't Googling right now, Emily's List or Emily Kane, and, you know, and they're, they're thinking, oh, if she, some of them might be saying, if she can do this, I can do this, right? But <laughs> others, others might be thinking, oh, I never thought about that. I mean, emilyslist.org, you can go to our website and you can find, you know, 
jobs you can apply for. You can you can yeah. actually have a jobs bank. You can submit your resume if you want to work on a campaign, right? And yeah. we will help place you on a campaign all around the country. Our uh, Run to Win community is a community, that community of more than 65,000 women of all ages and backgrounds across the nation who think they might want to run for office someday. We have a Facebook community for that group that is a lively and inspiring conversation about everything from what shoes do you wear when you knock on doors to how do you manage to feed your family when you're campaigning for office? Or I'm not ready to run, but I want to help a woman run. How can I help? You know, yeah. um, there's no rules about when you run or how you participate. But I think we need more and more women participating as soon as they're ready. Definitely. Absolutely. And I think that's the perfect segue to talking about some of the amazing candidates that you guys are supporting this year, this this rat race around the sun. Can you yes. give us a few highlights as to who you guys are supporting? For sure. Let me start with governors, right? We have Stacey Abrams, my dear friend, former Georgia minority leader, national all-star running for I've governor. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> okay, okay, let's start with... Let's start with everyone should know Stacey Abrams and be in her fan club, right? But but we've also, I'm going to talk about some of the challengers, right, that we have. We have Deirdre DeGier running to be the first Black woman to ever be governor in Iowa. Nellie Gorbea running, she, Latina, running in Rhode Island. We have Katie Hobbs, the Secretary of State of Arizona, running for governor there. Tina Kotek in Oregon. Nan Whaley, the mayor of Dayton, running in Ohio. The, these are women who are proven leaders, proven movers and shakers, taking on tough gubernatorial races around the country to join governors like Janet Mills in Maine, like Michelle Lujan Grisham in New Mexico, Laura Kelly in Kansas, Gretchen Whitmer, of course, in Michigan, Kathy Hochul in New York, uh, women whose executive power during the Trump administration is what saved us from a lot of bad things from happening, right? Mm -hmm. And now they're the ones who will be making the decisions when it comes to women's reproductive health care what happens as we come out of COVID. We need women in those offices. So let me talk about the Senate next, because the Senate is really important. We have four incumbent women running for the Senate. Senator Tammy Duckworth in Illinois, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto running in New Mexico for re-election, Maggie Hassan running in New Hampshire, and of course, Patty Murray, who's the woman highest up in the United States Senate in leadership from the great state of Washington. On the challenger side in the Senate and in, in open seats, we, we have four really exciting candidates. I'm excited to tell you about Abby Finkenauer in Iowa, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, and Val Demings in Florida, both of whom would help us put a Black woman or two or more, would be great, into the United <laughs> yeah. States Senate, yeah. right? And then State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski in Wisconsin running a very exciting primary up there. I know Sarah personally, and her enthusiasm is contagious. But these are our game-changing, history-making face of power changing women, right? And then in, in the house, I mean, that's another like, how much time do you have? But we have right. so many women. I, I mentioned Lauren Underwood. She's a great example of uh, an incumbent woman that we've re endorsed for reelection. Cindy Axney in Iowa is another great reelection. Angie Craig, who's the, who's the only openly lesbian mom serving in Congress from Minnesota. We have Sharice Davids, one of the was two, but now one Native American women serving in the U.S. House from Kansas. These are examples of exciting incumbents we have who are running. Some examples of some of the challengers and open seats. We have the Commissioner of Labor in, in Oregon, Val Hoyle, running for the U.S. House. We have Summer Lee running in a competitive primary, running ahead. If you look at the polls, 
in Pennsylvania. We cannot forget about Michelle Rayner. I just saw her last week running in Florida. Wow, she's just such an exciting, again, game-changing, history-making candidate. And Amelia Sykes, the former minority leader of the Ohio House of Representatives running for the U.S. House now from Ohio. So that's just a, a you know, a mix. Jessica Cisneros yeah, totally. running in Texas, Michelle Vallejo running in Texas. We also have down ballot statewide races now that are really get going, like Rochelle Garza running for <laughs> attorney it's general in so Texas. Excited. I mean, I mean, honestly, you should just have me back to do like the greatest hits of all the candidates running because um, we I love that. Yes. And greatest I love hits. the branding of that greatest hits. Me too. Hell yeah. Yes. There's so many. I mean, and the other thing is look, I you know we're kind of going on here, but like primaries matter. A lot of people want to do politics for like so I can't important. involved in primaries, right? Because they're uncomfortable. Let me just literally give it to you straight. You do not get to be elected in November if you are not on the ballot. Yeah. The only way you get on the ballot is if you win the primary. Mm -hmm. It's just math, right? So Emily's List helps women win primaries because then they are on the general election ballot, right? Mm -hmm. So get engaged in primaries. Go vote in your primaries. Like that's your homework assignment for everybody listening is find out when your state, unless you live in Texas who already had theirs, Find out when your state primary is and make sure you're registered to vote in it because primaries matter. They determine who gets in the ballot in November, right? Don't get to October and say, I hate all these candidates, but you could have made a decision. Right, exactly. So totally. We had a conversation with our friend Brian Derrick about this recently, and he was Mm -hmm. making, you know, the classic point of like with primaries so often, it's like the extremes show up on either side. And then we come to the general election and everyone's pissed off because they're looking at the ballot and they're like, I don't want any of these people and they just sort of pick their party and it's like we do have a choice in this we Mm -hmm. just have to pay attention a smidge Mm -hmm. earlier it's not asking Mm -hmm. that much so also voting is fun like voting is fun oh my god yeah trust me as someone that loves to give their unwarranted opinion at any moment (laughs) i love voting if i can also too this is very weird but i loved filling out scantrons as a kid like scantron tests were fun for me I think oh it was God. like I the OCD to, of like filling out a circle. So that element of voting, even love that. <laughs> Stickers. Like, the voting outfits. Oh my God, the voting outfit. I, I can't In 2020, I wore, I I wore my day. Kamala shirt to vote. Because I was so good. I was yes. like, I wore my Kamala shirt to go vote in the 2020. And I used the Dropbox in my town. I used the Dropbox option because of COVID. I went to safely drop in the box yeah. at the Orono town office, wearing my Kamala shirt, kind of danced down the street. I didn't have <laughs> the Converse kicks, but I did have some cute sneakers on and I had like my best Kamala look going to the- I love, to the I'm always in my sweats voting from home because we love also, California. Yeah, <laughs> we love we love a good at home voting situation yes. in California in Washington state and others, yes. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, to kind of wrap everything up, we've talked so much about all the amazing work you guys do. Can you plug everything and everywhere people can find you guys and get involved? Yes. So great question. So we are emilyslist.org on the good old fashioned internet. We are Emily's List on Twitter, uh, Emily's underscore list on Instagram. We just posted our first reel the other day. We're getting into it. I know know you've been doing it a lot longer than us. Those are the, the best places to find us. But if you go to our website, you can actually find lists of all of our candidates. You can follow our president, LaFonza Butler, on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Emily Ann Kane. You can follow LaFonza as well on Instagram. And I'm Kane for Maine on Instagram. But, you know, you can join or opt into our SMS. It's 47717. I think if you just text, like, opt in to that, (laughs) you can join our, our SMS. I also will say I definitely recommend on the Emily's List website, that you check out the run to win program. And, and if you really 
Um, if you go under the get involved section and, and put in where it says click on the run for office, you can, it's emilyslist.org slash run hyphen two hyphen win. This is where you can sign up to have access to our free online training center, which is, is truly free, like actually free, not like fake free, like real <laughs> free to democratic pro-choice women who just want to know more about where can I run? What could I run yeah. for? What would, if I want to run someday, but I don't want to run now, what should I be doing to maybe get ready for that? Right. Mm. What do I do with these contacts and business cards, both actual and virtual that I get? Like, what do I do with my social media? Right. We have an online training program that takes you through all of that, that online Facebook community I mentioned earlier, the run to win Facebook community is another great place. You can join and be a part of that conversation about running, find some women you can help, help run or run yourself. So there's so many ways to get involved and the answer to which one should you do is all of them. But at the very least, follow us online on our social media and get up to speed on our candidates because there's probably one or more running not far from wherever you live and you might be able to get involved. Totally. And I want to ask you to plug one more thing because I know our brand ambassadors are going to be obsessed with it. And that is the resume bank. How do they submit everything? What's the the plug on that? On the Emily's List website, you you go to get involved, right? And you click on jobs. And if you scroll down to the bottom, it'll say training and campaign jobs. And it'll say, submit your resume to the jobs bank. You can also sign up to receive a weekly email with job postings and opportunities. And you can submit your resume to actually be considered for campaign a digital jobs separately. So there's the regular jobs bank for training and campaigns jobs. There's another one for digital campaign jobs. And then you can actually sign up to receive that email that'll come right to you with opportunities. Amazing. Also amazing. (laughs) I also am just like giggling over here because I just like connected the dots that you're Emily Kane from Maine, who also is executive director at Emily's List. (laughs) (laughs) Is that like a regular thing people say to you or did I just like? I mean, let's just say, let's just say I don't hate it. And it's a lot of fun. (laughs) You know, it is, it's, it's actually really fun. It's a great sort of icebreaker. And yeah. it draws people in to really hear the story of Emily's List. And so, but it never gets old. I mean, I Which love also my, that you can tell I love, like, I love my job. Like, and yes, also you... like, I'd actually do bake. So like, I know a thing or two about early money <laughs> being like yeast. So. I, I did not know that was the acronym, but I'm obsessed and it's so niche, but I love it. But thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing and you are amazing. Might be calling you up for some of those pep talks um, when needed, but thank you again. And listen, I really would, as we get closer to the election, if I can come back and talk about the importance of women voting, talk about some of the specific candidates we have and what the races, where the races need the most support, I'd be happy to come back and, and share that conversation with you. This is the year we got to keep talking about it. So Mm -hmm. we definitely need to make that happen. But awesome. Thanks for having me. Let's get into it. Okay. Top stories of the week. Top, top story of the week to kick us off. Roe v. Wade. Let's talk about it. Let's explain it. So basically, a draft opinion suggests the U.S. Supreme Court could be poised to overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade case that legalized abortion nationwide, according to a political report. So a decision to overrule Roe would lead to abortion bans in roughly half the states and could have a huge ramifications for this year's elections. But it's unclear if the draft represents the court's final word on the matter. Opinions often change in big ways and in small in the drafting process. So again, this isn't completely concrete, but every expert 
has been saying this is going to happen. And this, mm-hmm. I feel like, couldn't be more of a confirmation that it will. But who knows? I mean, maybe protests and other things could spark some type of adjustment here. But I, I don't I don't want to get anyone's hopes up. So, yeah, this is yeah, just it ain't it. like the hope here and we'll get into it at the end of this too, is really electing officials, the state and local level, that support abortion rights. That is going to be the saving grace in many, many states, and it needs to continue to be for years to come. So that's really the yeah. hope. The hope so is that this Check your registration. Up. Check your friends' yes. registrations. Get out there. Yeah. Get, get a vote in. Yeah, voting. But also, President Joe Biden said Tuesday that the basic fairness and the stability of our law demand that the court not overturn Roe, while emphasizing that he couldn't speak to the authenticity of the draft. Biden said his administration is preparing for all eventualities for when the court ultimately rules and that a decision overturning Roe would raise the stakes for voters in November's heated midterm election. Biden said, if the court does overturn Roe, it will fall on our nation's elected officials at all levels of government to protect a woman's right to choose, and it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November. Amen. At the federal level, we will need Oh my God, I beat him to it. You did, you did. At the federal level, we will need more pro-choice senators, amen to that, and a pro-choice majority in the House to adopt legislation that codifies Roe, which will work to pass, which I will work to pass and sign into law. So also a little explainer here, codifying Roe basically means it will become the law of the land. And that's why it's also important that we get this through the House and the Senate, because we can't just have it be like some executive order that can be overturned. So... Yes, let's definitely work to get this codified on the federal level. But right now, I think the biggest priority is to look to your states and your state reps and these state elections. And one, sorry, you're on a good roll. No, bring us home. Bring us home. If you're looking for like someone that might be a little bit of an issue for like bringing this back to like federal as to why this has not been codified, codified, codified. Oh, my God. Codified, 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 like a codfish. Okay, at the federal level, I mean, his name is Joe Manchin. So... His name is the filibuster. His name? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Philly Philly the filibuster. Oh my God, if we're ever teachers, which I don't really see for us, because I don't know who the hell would give us their children to take care of or (laughs) whatnot, but (laughs) just saying... Like, imagine we're in a classroom and we're teaching about, like, the different processes. And we're like, here's Philly the filibuster. Okay, I'm going to go. <laughs> and we're like, Dick Santis, Cockblock McConnell. And everyone's like, there's children here. We did get pitched to go on a kid's show the other day. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I saw that and passed away. We got emailed being like, hey, want a pod swab? We have, like, <laughs> we were breaking down politics for kids and families. And Sam had to respond and be like, um, ma'am, we're a fully explicit podcast. Don't think it's a good fit. And like, mad like, respect to her. Work. Like, I yes. was like, I really appreciate it. Like, anytime someone wants to, like, work with us, like, we always appreciate, you know, the contact and thinking of us. But it was just so funny that it was like, kids, kids, for us, just no, yeah. nope. Yeah. Mm-mm. So if the, if SCOTUS, SCOTUS the SCROTUS, oh my God, Samantha, get together. Anyways, if the Supreme Court falls through on overturning the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade case that legalized abortion nationwide, it would immediately split the country into states with abortion access and those that outlaw it. 
Some states have already been preparing for the potential that the high court could weaken or overturn Roe. The bombshell leak of the draft opinion appeared to accelerate that drive Tuesday, setting the country on a course for an even more jumbled landscape of abortion rights even before the court actually issues the ruling. Almost immediately after Politico released the draft Monday night in the midst of the Matt Gilla, the Gilla? <laughs> Almost immediately after Politico released the draft Monday night, Republicans who had fostered a decades-long push to end abortion rights cheered the prospect, while Democrats vowed to fight the possible overturning of a constitutional right that has been in place for nearly half a century. In California, Democrats who wield control of the state legislature, the governor's office, issued a joint statement late Monday announcing that they would seek to amend the state's constitution to enshrine abortion rights. By the way, side note, I was checking on which states have trigger laws. I couldn't remember, like, okay, exactly what the list was. And in it, too, there are some states where they might not have a trigger law, but they actually have passed a constitutional amendment explicitly declaring that their constitution does not secure or protect the right to abortion or allow use of public funds for abortion. There are actually four states that this is the case with. So when there are states that are, like, looking to do the opposite, like California, I mean, only pushes this only getting further and further apart so you have some states that are like you constitutionally will not like have amended their constitute their state constitutions yeah. to make sure it does not protect abortion or allow use of public funds then you have states like california that are now trying to do the opposite and make sure it's protected under their constitution so just interesting mechanisms across government it's really my my yeah. commentary and just yes. because the state doesn't have a trigger law like in alabama like that's kind of sparked a little bit of this conversation which is a whole longer story but regardless about half of u.s states are already expected to ban abortion of Roe falls according to the abortion rights think tank gutmacher institute i just feel like i have to say nice. some type of, of no like, honestly that was like pretty impressive wow like is my german heritage showing <laughs> 22 states largely in the south midwest already have total or near total bans on the books aside from texas all are now blocked in court because of roe now 13 states have so-called trigger laws, which would immediately ban abortion if Roe is overturned, would presumably go into effect if the Supreme Court majority votes for the draft in late June or early July. So, mm -hmm. now you've gotten to the action items portion of this catastrophe. Maddie, you want to you wanna roll this through? Yes. Action items. First of all, just share this podcast with your friends. Tell your friends to follow us and check that your friends are registered to vote. I just can't emphasize enough how important it is if you do go to your friends and get five to ten of your friends to start paying attention start their political learning get registered to vote start voting etc that domino effect is really impactful and again like we're a great resource but we're also like i think one of our favorite things about about our especially instagram and stuff is that we are sharing other resources that are so amazing daily about this issue but about a range of political issues so just keep sharing sharing everything sharing content sharing tiktok sharing podcasts and keep the conversations going i think that's such a crucial crucial and easy action item to take always always promoting our friend brian derrick who is just the political explainer and icon of our lifetime and again he's constantly explaining just politics in general he's a great follow for every for all things politics, but in light of this story, he's giving effective tips on how to politically donate in this midterm election in these swing races that we can actually win and potentially help support abortion rights and access in some of these states where it could be 
restricted. Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota are some of them. So go follow him. And he actually has raised, I think, like $50,000 today or something for some of these races through his post. So he's absolutely killing it. And it really just like, it goes a long way. Dollar, $5, $10. So start your donating. But continue your donating with the Lila Fund, the T Fund, the Yellow Fund. Those are tagged in our most recent post on at Girl on the Go of the podcast. And also just follow, donate, and support organizations like Emily's List, Eleanor's Legacy, Sister District, who are supporting pro-choice candidates up and down the ballot during this crucial election year. So we got tons of stuff. We'll link some more in the episode description. And DM us with your questions. If you have questions or if you want to share also a resource or an action item that you found that you love, we are happy to share it and keep that conversation going. So yeah, and just don't be complacent this year. Don't let the story die. Don't let this like, if you're feeling fiery today about this, don't let it die. Keep it going. And again, keep that conversation going with your friends. I think that's that's so crucial. But next story It's regarding student debt and some of headway that has been made on that front because people have been pushing President Joe Biden to get his little pen and sign an executive order to cancel student debt. And actually, I think it kind of started on TikTok, but there was like thousands of pens sent to the White House. And I think think there was Victoria Hammett. Yeah, which is kind of when I guess I don't, we don't know if this is the reason that now he's considering it but just a lot of advocacy and a lot of outreach to the White House to push this through and it's actually I think really been impactful because now he is um, nearing a decision on how to handle forgiving student debt so let's get into like what this means and we'll go over kind of what each political side is saying about about this topic so to kick us off student debt forgiveness so President Joe Biden is reporting, reportedly nearing a decision on how to handle forgiving student debt for borrowers, a policy he ran on in the 2020 election. I think that's what also is an important point here of why people are so fired up about this and so adamant about making this happen is because it was a huge mm-hmm. campaign promise Joe Biden was pushing out that ultimately I think got him a lot of young people to vote for him. So trying to get him to fulfill this promise that he made in his campaign. Make sure you do this with all your representatives, by the way. Don't let them get away with this shit. But anyways, since taking office, Biden has repeatedly extended the COVID-era moratorium on student debt payments, which is basically a pause. So people haven't been having to pay those those student debt payments during the pandemic. But now his administration says it is making a decision on a permanent fix for student debt. And the administration is considering various ways to forgive some student loan debt through executive action. In recent weeks, senior... Senior Biden aides. <laughs> it's like Senior Biden. Is that what we're calling him now? Um, <laughs> so in, <laughs> in recent weeks, senior Biden aides have examined limiting the relief to people who earned less than either $125,000 or $150,000 as individual filers for the previous year. And that plan would set the threshold at around $250,000 or $300,000 for couples who file, file their taxes jointly. And no final decisions have been made. And the people with familiar who are familiar with the matter stress the planning was fluid and subject to change. And then today, about one in eight Americans hold student debt. And Americans owe nearly $1.6 trillion in student loans held by approximately 43 million borrowers. So that's the lay of the land. Sam, can you run us through what each side is saying? What are some of these political arguments? 
Ah, oui, oui, mademoiselle. Okay, so these argumentos. The left mostly supports some student forgiveness, though they disagree on how much. Some argue that Biden cannot wait any longer. Others say it's a bad idea, both politically and economically. So also, side note, guys, this particular article comes from a media source called The Tangle. And what they do is they show like both sides of arguments. They'll show like the, the right and the left, which I think is super interesting in general, like always seeing different opinions. But especially with like these political issues, like nothing's necessarily black and white. Or even if maybe to you it is, it at least still gives you perspective to understand like what what is going through someone else's brain and I think that's kind of cool so nonetheless one particular quote pulled from this and we'll also link it in the description here so you guys can take a look but regardless one quote on the left side is for some the scheme was blatant as lower income kids desperate to climb the ladder were targeted by often scammy for-profit universities used boiler room recruitment tactics and steered students to max out on loans system in which the schools got all the dollars from Washington while these young people were taught underwhelming career skills were on the hook assuming they even graduated. But even kids who went to reputable public or private universities have been cheated. That's because conservative state lawmakers pulled the plug on college as a public good slash funding for higher education at the exact time that rapid changes in the economy made a college degree practically the only valid passport for staying in the middle class and at the same time the colleges fought to lose students with expensive prestige branding rather than any effort to keep tuition low. Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Again, it's it's a very comprehensive issue. So what is the right saying? Well, the right is unanimous in its opposition to loan forgiveness. Many say Biden is trying to bribe voters. <laughs> you know, I don't disagree with that if he actually does it. It's, well, he, I, mean, I think it's a concession. I mean, but if but he, he doesn't do it, he was also trying to like bribe, bribe them to promise totally. that he's not going to fulfill. Exactly. I mean, you can say that about any fucking Anything. issue, really. Yeah. It's all concessions and compromises and whatever. Yeah. So, you know, twist the words on it, whatever. Others say it is welfare for upper and middle class. Okay. I, I okay. just can't. I just, yep. Well, we see where we stand on this one, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> We're so good at staying in the middle. Anyways, uh, can you get through this article? So the quote from the right side of things here. Remember how Democrats sold their student loan takeover as a money saver? Now millions of borrowers can't or don't want to repay their Who would want to? Okay. Samantha, get through the quote. Through we're, the just, quote. we're just sharing their, the right's opinion, okay? Just let them let speak. <laughs> also, I love how this comes off the heels of me being like, I love hearing both sides of it. <laughs> and I really bad. do. But it doesn't mean it doesn't raise my blood pressure. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> What's the right so, thing? What's the right thing? <laughs> so President Biden says he may cancel their debt. Taxpayers who repay their loans or didn't go to college will pay instead. The administration has repeatedly extended what was supposed to be temporary pause in student loan payments and interest accrual. This reprieve has cost the government $100 billion and counting, money that Congress hasn't appropriated. Now Democrats want Mr. Biden to compound the damage to taxpayers and the Constitution by writing off loans by presidential fiat. That was the right's opinion. Now you've heard both sides. Those are those are a sliver of, of the opinions on, yeah. on this topic. There's much, much more where that came from, but we picked a few of, of the standouts, but also just like this story 
some numbers to like paint the picture I think Mm, are really impactful so 169 percent is the increase in cost of college between 1980 and 2019 so cost of college went up 169 percent in that time period increase in earnings for workers between the ages of 22 and 27 during that same time period was only 19 percent so cost of college went up 169 percent but the increase in earnings for workers was only 19%. So huge discrepancy there. $45,000 is the median earnings for young adults with a college degree, according to a Georgetown study, which is fucking crazy, which barely keeps you afloat these days, at least in the cities we live in. (laughs) Yeah. But $30,000 is the median earnings for young adults without a college degree, according to the same Georgetown study, which is also very rough and puts you below the poverty line in a lot of places and ten thousand seven hundred and forty dollars is the average cost of college for in-state students at a public four-year university and thirty eight thousand dollars is the average cost of college for students at a private four-year university so another huge discrepancy there again 10k for in-state public 38k for private four-year yeah those numbers are insane and i think there's also like conversation around creating policy that can kind of stop this problem at its at its root, which definitely needs to happen alongside forgiving student debt, you know, for all these people who had to like deal with these insane prices and ultimately not get the earnings they were hoping for that the degree promised them. But how can we stop this issue at its core and make college and education more affordable and earnings fairer? So there's just, like, so much to do on this topic that goes beyond just, like, canceling student debt from the past. Like, how can we prevent this this debt from even happening, you know? So that should also be a big part of this conversation. But those are our top stories. Tons to talk about. Again, follow us on social media. Share all of this political content with your friends and make sure this political conversation does not stop until November. November, I will give you guys a break. You don't have to look at politics for like a few months. But like, do not stop having these conversations and sharing resources, action items, and political learning with all of your friends so that everyone is ready to vote. There's so much at stake and we can't sleep on it. 2020 was its own beast, but we're we're in another one this year. So just keep spreading the word. A few housekeeping items before you leave. If you're looking for an internship, we are have a summer internship. If you are a college student and can get college credit as well as a fall internship, same deal. You can go to girlinthecup.com slash careers. If not, join our brand ambassador program. We are continuing the conversations there with politically minded young ladies who want to have more impact. We have resume boosters. There's also no requirements to join our brand ambassador program. So go check it out at girlinthecup.com and go get four bottles of wine for $29.95 with Wink. That is linked in our episode description along with these other housekeeping items. So go find it there. But yeah, do you have any any closing thoughts? No. For okay. once. Besides. <laughs> I feel like you never do. On, I will because you know with my ADHD by the time we get to the end of this, I'm like in another, I'm on another planet. Yeah, I've left planet. the building. My brain, I don't even know where it's at. If anyone finds it, return to sender. Okay. Well, Cool. Anyways, (laughs) we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday.
Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.